Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. Cancer. It has not been described as the emperor of all maladies for no reason. The National Cancer Institute reported in 2020 that almost 40% of men and women will be diagnosed with cancer during their lifetimes. The American Cancer Society estimated that in the U.S. there would be 1.9 million new cancer cases diagnosed in 2021 and 608,570 cancer deaths. These grim statistics show that far too little progress has been made in addressing this disease. There are reasons why, and my guest today is here to talk about them and about his role as a disruptor of the status quo with his approach to treating and healing cancer. Oncologist Dr. Raymond Chang has top-flight credentials, having received his medical degree with high honors from Brown University, been elected a fellow of the American College of Physicians, and been on staff at the world-renowned Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He is also trained in Eastern medicine and is known as one of the earliest pioneers in the field of alternative cancer therapies, having founded in 1997 the Meridian Medical Group in New York, an alternative practice focused on complex, serious health issues, including cancers and autoimmune diseases that are not well served by modern Western medicine. Hailed by New York Magazine as a, quote, new healer, unquote. More than 20 years ago, Dr. Chang has spent the past two decades devoting his efforts to calling for a different paradigm for treating cancer using a cocktailed approach, which he describes in his landmark book, Beyond the Magic Bullet, The Anti-Cancer Cocktail, A New Approach to Beating Cancer. Does it work? It did for me. Full disclosure, Dr. Chang is my lead oncologist and has been treating me for kidney cancer, of which I have been recently cleared. Welcome, Raymond. Pleasure. When did you get this idea to come up with a cocktail approach and to change your approach to dealing with cancer? Um, I think it came on gradually. Uh, uh, I was... I'm my 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 personal background is uh, and my undergraduate interest was in philosophy, so uh, I like to think metaphysically sometimes about things and and uh, look into the underlying principles and reasons of why we do certain things a certain way we do them, uh, and of course uh, being of an uh, of uh, Asian origin, uh, I think some of the ways of thinking is kind of ingrained uh, culturally. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, I, I would not say it's a, like there was a eureka moment, but uh, things came gradually uh, when one becomes dissatisfied with uh, the conventional approach uh, in modern medicine, where things are increasingly protocolized, uh, where uh, bureaucracy dictates practice, uh, and, uh, and we are uh, also driven by pharmaceutical interests and uh, insurance uh, interests uh, that, that comes before the patient's interest. Um, but this also, uh, these issues these negative trends also intensified during the past uh, few decades that I've been in practice. So again, I, I don't think it's a eureka moment, uh, but gradually uh, it's clearer to me what doesn't seem to be a right approach and what the weak link was, was that it's not necessarily, so my point is we're so focused, all the research funding, uh, uh, top scientific minds are focused on finding new and better treatments. But maybe we take a breath, slow down and think about it. It may not entirely be the, that we're missing like a top-notch weapon for the war. Uh, but maybe we don't have the right strategy. So if you don't have the right strategy, uh, in war, 
it doesn't matter what kind of weapons you possess. If you have the right strategies, the weapon, uh, the weaponry may not, may, may be secondary. So, I mean, that uh, that is well known to certainly military strategists. Uh, so um, we, we have, and this is a very Western way of thinking, uh, we have to believe that uh, the more intense is the better, uh, the more powerful, the better, uh, nuke them all, uh, nuke it all. Uh, and the more expensive much must be better, the more the more recent discoveries must, must be better than older discoveries, etc. But it, it, they, if you think deeply about these matters, it may not be the case. So, and, you know, exactly in wars, we've experienced that. It's not always the superpower that wins. Uh, okay, so, um, so I, I think the focus is, uh, my focus is more on strategy which uh, aligns with my more philosophical background. I'm more interested in the principles of treatment and how we put things together to think about it and not to act in a mindless fashion, just following some treatment protocol. If A, then B, then C, if not C, then D. I mean, that's a very, just a, uh, uh, what I call a cafeteria approach. If it's Monday, it's chicken, chicken soup, um, that is, totally mindless but unfortunately that's how medicine is practiced uh, well especially at, at major institutions they have to follow and abide by protocols and uh, so frequently they will say um you know this is protocol you have stage x cancer of this type then the protocol treatment is a what if the protocol doesn't work and you go to b and that doesn't work. And you I go, mean, which is usually a lesser protocol because ethically they give you the best one up front. So then you call upon the reserve, then it's B. B doesn't work, then you go to C. But it's linear. If you notice, it's one thing after another. It's try, try, uh, try penicillin first for your sore throat. That doesn't work, call me in three days. Then we put you on uh, something stronger, uh, amoxicillin. That doesn't work, we switch you to something stronger. Okay, but... Cancer is not a sore throat. When things don't work, you may be nearer to your deathbed. Uh, it's not a sore throat. So you lose time. And uh, the, the, when they start a treatment A, they can only give you a statistic that there's a certain chance that this will work, uh, but there's no guarantees. So you may spend few, a few months trying to figure out if it's working. Unlike a sore throat, it's not like you call the doctor after three days. I mean, it will take them a few, three months to see if the treatment's working. And right. if it's not working, then you're, you know, you're on your way down towards the ditch. Right. Uh, for example, if, if it's an advanced case and, and then you lost three months, then you have to try treatment B, which is a lesser treatment by definition because they gave you the better one up front then that may not work and you don't know again you're kind of in the dark and then you're just um, you're proceeding in this linear way one thing after another because that is protocol um, and uh, i think then the there there's a way to improve the odds it's all about odds uh, because since we don't know if it's going to be 100 percent successful so it's it's uh, it's like a bet it's a betting a situation, like a gambling situation. We place your bets. We know the odds, but there's no guarantee that you'll win. So right. what's the best way to approach this game, if you think of it that way, or this this whole thing? So there, there, there are better ways, uh, more rational, more scientific. There, there are better ways to give you a better outcome. I want to break this down piece by piece the way you did in your book, because... The first thing that you said that struck me was even the definition of cancer limits the way you think about treatment. You talked about the National Cancer Institute's definition of cancer being diseases in which 
abnormal cells divide without control and invade other tissues. And so you're looking for something that can stop the unruly division of cells. But yes. you're, but you, your idea is that cancer is far more complicated than that. It's, it's far more complicated in that it, it, there's a, there are multiple dimensions. Each cancer is different. Uh, each patient is different. Uh, people sometimes forget that we as physicians should not be only treating the disease, but ultimately, really, ideally, we should be treating the patient with the disease. It's the person that you are treating, not the disease that you are treating in isolation. Um, so, um, you know, like, uh, like, uh, Treating COVID is not only about treating the, it's not treating the virus, it's treating the person with the virus, which can manifest in so many different ways. So same with the cancer, depending on the stage, depending on the histology, the genetics, et cetera, et cetera, but very much dependent also on the patient. You can have two people with the exact same disease, but with that warrants totally different approach, totally different, night and day. Why because is that? you take the person into account. So their particular health situation, their metabolism. Yeah, I give you metabolism. examples of patients I've had. I had a priest from Schenectady with a prostate cancer. Uh, when proposed with, which is a standard treatment of medical castration, the use of hormones, which will render him impotent, his reaction was hallelujah. That's a gift of God. I mean, it's fine. I'll go with okay. that anytime. No problem. I start right away. The same disease, the same stage, the same prostate cancer. But I treated a, a well-known jazz man, a trumpet player. Um, he's older than the priest in his 70s. But he told me he just got married two months ago to a young lady. And his answer when I proposed the, the same treatment for the same disease, remember, his, his answer instead of a hallelujah, he said, hell no, no way I'm going to do that. Okay. And he also, both of them had good outcomes. Uh, both of them had good outcomes. The, 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 the jazz player went on into his 90s, actually married again. <laughs> wow, and, wow. And you know, he did not he, he died of something totally unrelated, he died of kidney failure unrelated to his cancer. But so I mean that's a stark example. Did you treat how, them very differently? Yes, different because of what their wishes are. Right. Because again, you treat the patient, not the cancer. Otherwise, if you so if you go to an institution, since it's the same cancer, they don't care who who is harboring the cancer, male, female. Uh, uh, you know, whatever you got married, didn't get married, whatever you're, you know, jazz player or, or a priest, they will be given exactly the same option. What I said is the chicken soup approach, a cafeteria approach, it's the same serving. Okay, but I, I think that is wrong. We treat the person with the disease and the person, they may be different. So you should approach it differently. You should take their considerations into account and their situations into account. So uh, then you have totally different treatments. There are standard treatments that are given to patients. I come from a family that has a lot of cancer. It's always the same. Chemotherapy, radiation, and in right. their case, death, okay? And, and the chemotherapy is so uh, deleterious to their immune system. Right. Uh, and, and it's, to me, I feel like chemotherapy is the equivalent of mowing the lawn. <laughs> you mow the lawn and it looks great, although you do have to have your head in a bucket for a while because it has bad side effects. And then, and then it sprouts up again. And you mentioned in your book that um, part of the reason, one of the reasons for that is that it does not destroy the stem cells of the cancer. Yes, that is one problem. Uh, it is believed uh, that there are so-called cancer stem cells, 
which is kind of like the, the mother root of the of the evil cell or the the, the uh, really the root so the, the, the usual treatments, which is chemotherapy and radiation, et cetera, usually does not touch the stem cells. So you can pare everything down. It's kind of like you kill all the bees except the queen. Uh, so basically uh, the cells can repopulate, which this accounts for why there are recurrences, uh, even after extensive treatment. Uh, when things looked good for a while and then it only lasts a while and then things come back with a vengeance because you never got rid of the root of the problem. And so the chemotherapies and radiation therapies, not that it doesn't do anything, it does buy time. It will push back. It will give you a period of window where there, uh, the, there's less burden of cancer but it did not get rid of the seeds. It's like uh, using your example, it's like uh, you use, uh, uh, you mow the lawn down or whatever, you try to mow the weeds down, but there are, you know, they have shed the, the seeds, uh, you, you, didn't, you didn't mow the seeds down. <laughs> the other thing it does is it decimates your immune system. And I don't think a treatment can, I, can be successful or even, delaying it like uh del giving you time like uh, chemotherapy if it if it comp destroys your immune system your body can never recover that it seems and it seems to me and you tell me if you've thought about this i'm sure you have that the one's natural in immune system the engagement of the natural immune system in this process of healing cancer is, is important. In the past five, 10 years, there is no, less doubt about the role of the immune system because the latest treatments uh, in cancer and the, the hottest area is, is immunotherapy. But this is new. Uh, for the longest time, it was kind of ignored, uh, at least in the way Western medicine developed. Uh, immunotherapy is not a mainstay. Immunotherapy was thought to be like uh, an alternative medicine or it's not taken seriously until very recently. Um, so, um, and it, it used to be much credit was awarded to chemo and radiation, etc. because it does, it's like your lawnmower, it does do its job. I mean, the lawn does look cleared up afterwards. I mean, the seats are still there and things come back and ultimately it's the same issue, but it, it works and it works very well for certain cancers. There are cancers that are cured by chemotherapy. No doubt, that's a very small percentage, but Which ones? some leukemias can be completely uh, eradicated by, by, by uh, chemotherapy, for example. So it's not like, uh, and it is useful, and I, I, I'm not against chemo or radiation. It has to be used appropriately, but it used to be that they they did not, uh, they did not give your, our own immune system uh, the, the the significance that it deserves uh, until more recent. I I read an article about a an English patient who took Keytruda. Uh, for kidney cancer, and he was completely healed. He responded extremely well, it was completely healed. And the article was saying <clears throat> one of the reasons why he was so responsive was because he had not had chemo and radiation before. Something had, chemo and radiation apparently alters the immune system in such a way that... Um, yes, of course, yeah. Let's just move on to your cocktail approach because um, Part of part of that approach is using from antidepressants to um, antiparasitics, you know, which exactly. is one of what you gave me. So could you talk about that? At the time, we, we called it uh, off-label medicines. Off-label means it doesn't say on the FDA-approved label that it's intended for the condition that you intend to use it for. So it's off the off the the official label. So the label has to be approved. The label on the, the labeling on the drug and the words are approved by the 
by the government. You cannot just simply put there that it treats everything under the sun. So that is not legal. So they can only put what's approved by the government. Uh, so if something is not on the label, off label, then it's, uh, uh, it belongs to a different legal category, okay? So now it's called repurposed drugs, which means the same thing, but it's less focused on the label, on the labeling, which is a... Uh, so repurposed drugs, the, the current name that's most commonly used, refers to medicines that are developed and normally applied to treat one thing that we can use it to treat another thing. And there are lots of medicines like that. In your medicine cabinet, you'll find that aspirin typically uh, is one of these things that on the label, it may say it's good for headaches and fevers, but commonly it's used for preventing heart attacks and strokes. It can even be used to treat a corn on your foot uh, um, and many other things. So aspirin actually has a lot of other uses. Uh, Apparently so, anti-cancer too from your book. Yes, also it can be used to prevent colon cancer uh, and other cancers, uh, etc. So if you, but if you, if your main purpose is, is using it is in those other ways, it's not going to be on the label and it's considered a repurposed use. There are a lot of old drugs, common drugs, inexpensive drugs that are useful for cancer but they are not officially sanctioned. Talk about some of them specifically. Uh, the one that I use a lot is metformin, uh, that I like a lot because it's very minimally, has almost no uh, serious toxicity. It's used by millions of diabetic patients to control their blood sugar. It's an old drug. It dates, uh, it's over half a century old. It comes from nature. It's from the French lilac plant it has its main purpose is to control blood sugar or metabolism it has other off-label uses it's also used to treat women with polycystic ovary uh, syndrome uh, to help enhance fertility it's being researched as a longevity drug it's one of the only drugs that's proven at least in in animals to uh, prolong life so but there's a lot of data uh, on the use of metformin uh, as a treatment and preventative for cancer. How does it act? I wrote a, an art, uh, a paper on this, which is now included in a book chapter, uh, metformin and, its, uh, and how it works and, and which cancer it's good for. Uh, it's what I call a multifaceted mechanism of action. It has multiple dimensions. Uh, it, it helps the immune system, uh, it blocks blood supply to cancer cells, but the main way that it works is by controlling sugar. Sugar is the fuel for cancer cells. It's like gasoline, well now electricity can be a fuel for an automobile. So the idea is if you control the the fuel to the cancer, the cancer can grow, it can accelerate, uh, it cannot spread. So, uh, but there are lots of studies, which the studies started in England when they uh, were surprised to notice that diabetic patients who are taking metformin are less prone to develop cancer. Now they're surprised because you would think that, that a diabetic is a weaker person, has more medical issues. If anything, they should have a worse, you know, uh, probability of either developing or dying from cancer. But if you looked, actually, diabetics who take metformin have better uh, uh, probabilities of not contracting coming down with cancer or to die from cancer. So that led to more and more work, both in the test tube and then in animals and in cancer by cancer, showing that across the board, metformin uh, reduces the occurrence, may improve the survival, reduce the uh, metastasis, et cetera. So it, it's really very, it's a very wonderful thing. 
Well, then how come not everybody is taking? Well, I'm yeah. taking it. I'm take. I don't have cancer. I'm just taking it as a preventative. Well, that has to do with the again that it's legally we're not supposed to prescribe it because it's not FDA sanctioned for anything other than the diabetes. Okay, so you have to do it off label. It it creates a, a legal liability for the physician. If something Why? Goes, very simply, if something goes wrong, you talk metformin and for for something that goes wrong whether really related or unrelated but you go home and something happened to you and uh oddball side effect and and the the physician uh gets uh summoned to court uh first thing first is that they will say that why did you prescribe this this is not supposed to be used for this so that immediately uh points to some sort of negligence as if you're not doing the right thing you but you do follow. have the legal right as a physician you have to, to prescribe it you have the right but in the, the the court of law and in 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 case of medical malpractice the way these cases are judged and decided is by your peers so it's your prof your your peers professionally say do they do this and they all come up and say, no, none of it, we don't do this. So if you don't follow the what's called a common standard of practice, you're in the wrong. You're Nothing to do with science. It has to do with what's legally, uh, uh, you're legally vulnerable if you don't practice the way your colleagues practice in your local area. In your book, you said that a lot of doctors tacitly agree that this cocktail approach using some of these off-label drugs is a good way to address cancer, and yet they won't do it because of what you just said. And to me, that's just that's just Yeah, crazy. you're sticking your neck out because you're doing something that is not sanctioned. I mean, nobody wants to look at, uh, okay, now it's controversial, it's a little extreme case, but the use of Ivermectin for COVID, I'm not saying, it's not my area. I'm not saying it works or doesn't work. But look at the problems facing some doctors who are trying to prescribe ivermectin. Some of them end up in court. Some yes. have to be ordered by a judge. Some hospitals have to be ordered by a judge in order to prescribe, to, to allow the patient to take ivermectin. Um, you know, but why i mean you know if you're dying uh, you know if you're in the throes of the covid and you're dying and nothing seems to work ivermectin is such a harmless drug so inexpensive etc cetera, etc cetera, why not give it to the patient well it's because it's not fda approved you can only receive fda approved substances otherwise you are not practicing by the rule of law and creates yeah. liability and the hospitals don't want it because they don't want the liability it, it, it all it, it goes back to liability it goes back to many other social and economic factors and and bureaucratic factors that uh, 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 have to do with the government uh, well, and it's state by state some states it's very difficult uh, some some states are more liberal in this regard uh, some states you can it's almost like abortion now right? you can do it here you can't do it there except so <clears throat> it, it, it is a very it can be a very controversial issue here's the thing that really that really is is to me just it's almost criminal you know i mean as someone who has had cancer and been in that desperate position i can tell you I'm, I'm looking in your book, you list a whole rafter of these uh, cheap, you know, drugs, everything aspirin lowers risk of colorectal cancer by 20% or more have taken for five years, antidepressants killing brain cancer cells, uh, semetidine acid reducer for treating ulcers is good for kidney, yeah, stomach, liver. A prescription is over the counter. 
And then antibiotics like uh, clarithromycin for multiple myeloma, anticoagulants like heparin reduces cancer, ability of cancer cells to stick together to form tumors, antifungal drugs for prostate cancer, anti-seizure seizure drugs for leukemia and solid tumors. It goes on and on and on. Right. And, and these are all controversial. Here's the part that makes me crazy because you can't get clinical trials on the use of these things for cancers because they're off patent. They're cheap drugs and it's too expensive to do it's not it's too expensive to do the clinical trials because these drugs are too cheap and to recoup I don't know to recoup the expense. Well, I don't know. You talk to me about this. I mean, this to okay. me is so infuriating. The, the it's very simple. The, the, the finance, uh, just to take, uh, just to have a few numbers in mind. If you uh, uh, simply Google the cost of drug discovery, a new drug is uh, now costing one to $1.3 billion to come to market. Come to market means go through the trials, get approved by the FDA. And the timeline is close to 10 years for a drug from discovering it in the lab, testing it in animals, then in humans, then going through the FDA, then to be licensed, and finally to be covered by insurance payers. It's a decade long process that's costing currently one to 1.3 billion, and it's going up every year. So if you have a very cheap medicine like metformin, which is in the pennies, uh, cimetidine, which is you know, even brand name cimetidine, you get over the counter at, at CVS for a couple of dollars, uh, uh, a package. So yeah, aspirin, we don't even have to say, okay, it's, it's uh, $3 for, for, for a bottle of 100. So who, who, which company in its right mind was, will try to spend hundreds of millions uh, or millions even uh, putting a, a medicine that they don't own because everybody can make it. It's off patent, as you say. Why and why would any sane uh, uh, pharmaceutical uh, uh, executive uh, try to put this through clinical trials to prove that it works in order to do what? Normally, drug companies do trials to prove that something works in order to be able to market and distribute and sell it. Remember, pharmaceutical companies are not charities. They are for-profit corporations, no different from McDonald's or Johnson & Johnson, for example. Uh, it's, it's, not, it's no different. They are not charities. It's not the, the, the Doctors Without Borders or American Red Cross. They are not there to develop drugs to benefit humankind. But they are there. Well, if it benefits humankind, all the better. Uh, but oh, they they also have a, 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 a duty to their shareholders to make money for them. That is the issue. So a, a money losing uh, proposition is to try to to uh, spend millions uh, on trying to uh, to uh, prove that something works for cancer and then to have other companies make and compete with you at much lower cost because they did not do the study. Remember anybody, everybody can make these drugs, Indian company, Chinese company, et cetera. There's, they are generic. It's the same issue with some of these generic drugs that work for COVID. Nobody wants to develop them or to study them too much because heck, there's no profit. I just had this idea talking to you. They should they should declare cancer a pandemic and issue <laughs> EUAs for all of those drugs. Emergency use authorization for all of these drugs. Right. Right. And and I the other thing I think is that physicians like you who are successfully treating patients should aggregate the data from all your you know, the patients that you have treated, aggregate that and put it in a world database and let that be the peer, you know, put that in peer reviewed. It's a good uh, idea, but it will be criticized uh, at the methodologic level because there is no conformity or uniformity of the patients. 
you know, some are older, some are younger. So they're all over the place. So clinical But that's the whole point. That's no, the but no. But you see, this is the other issue. This is the, the limitations of the scientific method, which now the, the clinical trial is sacrosanct. They pick and choose patients that are uniform, the same stage of cancer, the same, you know, approximately this age group. They all have, you know, and plus everybody is given only one thing at one time to see how that one thing works, because the idea is to study that one thing. Now, none of my patients only doing one thing. Uh, even if they're taking one drug, they may be on a special diet, et cetera, et cetera. So you cannot compare apples and oranges. We know that. And if you put it out there, you'll be criticized for mixing things up. Now, how do you know it's not uh, because, you know, certain patients that see you may be doing five other things on their own. I mean, you, you, they're not so-called, it's not a clean set which if you put it out there will be will be shot down by 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 the a a academics that they say that that doesn't repre represent anything is the patients who went to chang just uh, uh, had good luck i mean like you <laughs> so they say it's good luck how, how do you how can you prove that it's, it's statistically well, not relevant that makes no sense because here's where the rubber meets the road the rubber meets the road where the patient where you look at the patient is the patient healthy is the patient healed is it and you do case after case after case after case after case of that and and also the fact that when you were talking about you know they these clinical trials they try one thing and one thing alone so they will never under this paradigm they will never achieve a drug that will cure a cancer patient that will literally cure a cancer and I'm going to tell you something Raymond the the thing that struck me the most about you when I first walked into your office was that you said you said something to the effect I'll never forget it you said I'm not I, I'm not just here to treat you I'm here to heal you I had never heard a physician say that to me ever and and now you you've you've locate you've put your finger on something a paradigm that will never ever achieve a healing result because a it's not even defining the diseases uh in a way it defines the d diseases in a limited way which then limit and and they they research the disease in a limited way and so they will never ever and and yet and more and more people have cancer a lot of people die you know lots of people like 1.2 if you have 609,000 whatever people out of two, almost 2 million that's a lot of people you you pinpoint it I mean it's it's difficult so you 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 have a good point when you say we should declare this a pandemic <laughs> I didn't think of that but when when things are uh, cancer is now frequently touted as a chronic disease which is uh, euphemistic at its best because no it's not chronic disease uh come on but you know doctors are now uh, uh younger doctors sometimes are coached to use that to sugarcoat the diagnosis when they talk to the patient oh you have a chronic disease so don't worry well you know it's a, but you know cancer's not high blood pressure who are you kidding right so but then if it's looked at as well it's something we deal with you can you can live with it you know live with cancer except so you know it's the cure is, is not in the mind uh and there's lack of urgency there there are not so many advocate groups and they are not as uh, as urgent okay there's i don't no understand that everybody has everybody either has cancer or has someone in their family who right has. but there's no sense of urgency you know every other person has high blood pressure and high cholesterol also but those are treated like hey heck you know that's what you get you know that's what you get and it's a chronic you know then it's a chronic problem but for example then we look back to when hiv you recall the time when HIV first landed into our consciousness and our practice that there is such a disease, it was urgent. And there are groups of patients who were very activist, the HIV patients, okay, 
they actually went to protest down uh, in Washington in front of the FDA. Say, we need a treatment cure now. We can't wait, we're dying. We don't, we, you know, no cancer patients going down to the FDA to protest, okay? And that did spur action. That actually led to Dr. David Holes coming up with cocktail treatment for HIV, which is now standard for HIV. All HIV patients are treated with cocktails. The drugs are made as cocktails. Each drug has, well, it's one pill and it could have three things in it, for example. So, but what prompted that was the urgency and the political activism because patients were young at the time. A lot of them were young people. Uh, and, you know, I mean, it's HIV was, is, the sentence is, is the same as cancer. I mean, you die from a horrible disease, but since it's a new disease and affected young people, uh, there was activism, which, which did lead to these, that you jumped through, you know, you were able to, to uh, get things done that would otherwise not be done. We are somewhat laid back with cancer. Think about it. Well, I Number think one, part of the reason a lot of money there's all they say, and there is treatment already. You know, it's they're not perfect, but there are treatments. So nobody says that there's nothing to treat you with. It's just not very good things to treat you. with. I noticed that the the doctor who wrote the forward to your bo book was diagnosed with glioblastoma and was told, you know, to you know, you got a couple yeah, of months Williams. go to, and and he treated himself using a cocktail approach and you know right. he he healed he's himself yeah. you know yeah. he's cured and i know my personal experience uh my you know my i have one sister who died of glioblastoma horrible horrible death horrible death two died of ovarian cancer again horrible deaths after chemo and radiation i mean they lived the the last few years of their lives literally you know in bed or vomiting or what it was hard i mean i took care of them myself i i and and when i came down with cancer i just said to myself forget it i i prefer to die a quick death than have my head in a bucket for years or be laid out in lavender in my bed you know and and living you know existing in my bed and so you know fortunately i'm an investigative reporter and i was doing a lot of research and so on and i was questioning my doctors and so and I and I I I finally found you literally to me almost at the last minute I think, but but I never ever ever had that experience of being debilitated ever, ever, and I'm I was on this and I'm still on this this cocktail of drugs that it, uh, that you prescribed to me, including by the way an antiparasitic, which I'm very interested in. What is it that antiparasitics do? Okay. That's a very interesting question to me also. Um, uh, and I wrote a paper on the use of anti-malarials for cancer. And what we did was uh, uh, we surveyed uh, all existing anti-malarials, all the drugs that are considered that used for malaria in the world. And it, of all of them, a very great percentage of them if you also tested them uh, in the lab against cancers, a high percentage of them work against cancers. Now you would say that, that's a coincidence. I mean, you can't, can you imagine the screening a, a high blood pressure medicines and you know, that you'll find a lot of them will work for cancer. So that the, the next question is, is what, what, what's the similarity between a parasite, which is malaria, the parasite and a parasite and cancer? That's very interesting. I'm not saying cancer is a parasite, but think about it. There are a lot of parallels. A parasite feeds upon you. It exists in you, grows within you, and may eventually at least not demolish you necessarily, but certainly weaken you to a certain extent and can kill you. Um, but so it has similar attributes to a parasite. And there are people who used to think of cancer as a parasite. Um, it is parasitic. It feeds upon your healthy body to, to its own advantage. It takes, right. you know, it saps you in order for itself to, to, to gain. Uh, so that's very interesting. So, but 
uh, is just, uh, could it be just a coincidence? But there are a lot of molecular mechanisms that are shared. So it turns out that a lot of anti-malarials, which are anti-parasitics, so such as chloroquine, which is the controversial drug that we had for, for COVID also, but chloroquine is actually a very safe drug, dirt cheap, again, dirt cheap, uh, and uh, which has been shown to be useful in a lot of cancers. Brain cancer, glioblastoma, there's trials done, there was trials clinically, they're controlled, randomized controlled trials. Glioblastoma patients doing standard treatment and standard treatment plus additional chloroquine. The people who took chloroquine survived much better than those who only did standard. Now, chloroquine is so inexpensive. But How did it work, problem. though? How did it, what did it do exactly? It induces what we call autophagy. It's a self, it's kind of, it causes the cells, cells to self-destruct. Oh, so okay. now you can think, so what's the difference between then and chemo, which also destroys? Chemo destroys from the outside, what I would call like homicide is a murder. Okay, but these, some of these medicines like chloroquine causes the cells to self-destruct, which is suicide. So the end result is the same. Homicide and suicide both lead to death. But I'm sure everybody will agree that homicide and suicide is not the same thing. Right. It leads to the same thing. It's death, but death by other and death by self is not the same thing. Well, also, so it, it does it with less toxicity, too, right? Yes, it's it's hardly toxic, uh, yeah, uh, et cetera. So, uh, but we came back to the, come come back to the same question. The, the issue is no no pharmaceutical company is going to spend the, the the funding to 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 put it into clinical trial. Uh, it's too cheap. So if you prove that it works, everybody starts taking chloroquine. Who is to gain? The patients. The sure. patient. Yeah, but that's of least concern. But the, none of the pharmaceutical companies have anything to gain. Well, then, that do you think the this is something that but the government supposed to put up the money to do it? So they're doing it what for benevolent reasons only? What about the government institutions that that fund the, NI, the, the government, uh, like NCI? I don't want to speak for the NCI, but uh, it has uh, 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 it has a fundamental mission to discover new drugs. And actually part of it is that, uh, again, I, I'm not working for the NCI, et cetera. So uh, they, they, are, they are partial to drugs that can be patentable and that will be commercialized. Imagine the government coming up with some medicine that works. Now government is not in the pharmaceutical business of distributing drugs. The government can come up with a new drug. It will then license it to even for free. They will give it or license it to a drug company with the understanding that the drug company will try to commercialize and distribute it. If something does not have that potential, the government will not invest efforts into exploring it because that is not the job of the government. What's, what's the point of coming up with a medicine that nobody's going to make? There's no I, point. That's I the mean, argument. Okay. Why, why would you research and find something that nobody will nobody will produce? Then it's a dead end, right? So they only want they are preferably trying to come up with new compounds, new molecules, something entirely new that can be patented. The patents last for 20 years, and then a drug company will take it on to develop it into a pharmaceutical. The drug company will do the trials, um, etc. The government will come up with it. So that's usual. That's the usual way things work. It's absurd. It's absurd because the government is supposed to serve the people. It uses the people's tax dollars and it's using yeah. the people's tax dollars essentially almost against them in this case, because um, if we are in this, we are captivated by the capitalist system. Uh, yeah. What are we, what, you know, this is the system we're in. If this was a different system, it could be slightly different than the government. The government manufactures drugs. Okay, then the government will take the healthcare of its citizens entirely into its hands, research new drugs, 
all old drugs, uh, do the studies, trials, as well as manufacture and distribute them and uh, through government hospitals. And there'll be government employee taxes, et cetera. We're not in that kind of a, a society. Everything is private and driven. Unfortunately, our healthcare system is much driven, if not driven, then controlled certainly by, by capitalist uh, instincts. Insurance companies for profit. I mean, uh, no, uh, no. Drug companies yeah, yeah. are for profit. They are listed on the stock exchange. No, no. We, 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 know, no we non, know this. There's no non-profit uh, drug company. There's no non-profit, uh, you know. So, you know, they first look at the bottom line. Why well, maybe there why, should be non-profit. I mean, or, or any of these things, because what's the point? There's no point. Let's talk about the other th parts of, of the cocktail. You talked about um, herbs. You talked about, uh, just talk about the other, the other parts of it. There are standard drugs and there are non-standard drugs, which are so-called off-label, repurposed, etc. Then there are supplements, vitamins, and herbs. What is a supplement and what is a drug is somewhat artificial because some supplements in this country is considered a supplement that you can get at a health food store, but in another country would be considered a drug. For example, melatonin, that is common here, you will need a prescription for if you went to Europe, for example. What does it do? There are lots of studies and lots of patients using it. Uh, it also affects the immune system. Uh, there's uh, Professor Lizzoni from Italy has done a lot of studies uh, on the use of melatonin, for example. Yeah. You talk about vitamin D being very important. Yes, we, that we've been saying for, for decades, actually. So vitamin D3 is very useful. Uh, it is formally used as a prescription version of it. That's a 50,000, comes in 50,000 units a pill that's taken weekly as a, as a treatment, on, uh, as a prescribed treatment on prescription. And then, of course, you can get just uh, in a supplement store vitamin D. Yeah. It is right. good for prevention. I take it myself again. And I think uh, th there's a, a, a rampant, uh, very common, let's say, not necessarily rampant, but uh, deficiency of vitamin D because people avoid the sun. A lot of people avoid the sun thinking that it causes cancer. So you're always told to wear, okay, if you're out in the sun, you should wear sunscreen. Then that actually leads to a deficiency of vitamin D. Uh, which can cause cancer. To which cure. can, yeah. Well, think about it. That's actually very interesting. Vitamin D, I mean, we're, we're quite smart creatures or, or God created us in a very smart way. In response to the sun, to the ultraviolet rays that hit our skin and which can cause cancer, we produce vitamin D in the skin that counteracts that. That's not so hard to understand. We make something that counteracts something, but we make it naturally uh, to protect ourselves against some damaging you know, rays from, from nature. We naturally produce this except that we're now trying to protect against the raisin, so we don't produce it. So you become deficient, and then internally you can have cancers as well. Okay, but anyway, that, that's another story. So, so our, bodies are, our bodies can be quite smart. I think the immune system is, is, I mean, is genius yeah, we, if, we could, if we just supported it more, you know? I no. mean, there, there are two things, there are two, two other things I want to talk to you about. One is, um, the Chinese medicine. Chinese, uh, yeah, Chinese uh, herbal medicine, of course, has a very long tradition. Uh, it is not primarily uh, uh, developed against cancers for a very simple reason. Cancer is not such a common disease. If you go back in time and in ancient China, uh, either people didn't live long enough usually uh, to get it, and there aren't so many carcinogens in the environment that will give you uh, uh, cancer. So it's not the prominent feature of traditional Chinese medicine to treat cancers. However, there are many, many useful natural substances from herbs to minerals. Chinese medicine is not just herbs, only traditional Chinese herbs, but it's herbs and 
animals and insects and minerals and everything in, from nature, which can include all these things. There are uh, modern drugs that are developed from traditional Chinese plant material uh, or herbs or herbal material. Uh, for example, arsenic trioxide is now, it's called trisinox. It is a drug that's now used to treat acute leukemias. Uh, that is derived from a, a, a Chinese herbal formula is where it came from. It used wow. to be called, called Chairman Mouse treatment for cancer. And also uh, artemisinin or artensinate, yes. which is a natural anti-malarial uh, for which the discoverer, uh, the Chinese researcher, Dr. Tu, Professor Tu, got the Nobel Prize just a few years ago uh, for medicine. She's the first Chinese researcher to get the Nobel Prize for medicine from China. So she discovered this anti-malarial, which turns out it's also a good anti-cancer. So there are Chinese herbs from which cancer treatments can, can be discovered from. And of course, you can also use Chinese herbs uh, uh, in the traditional way to give the herbal, the brew to the patient, et cetera. The problem is again, the lack of studies. Whereas it's easy to test one herb in a test tube against some cancer cells, but to organize large studies, uh, uh, giving people say a hundred people with uh, uh, lung cancer only take this herbal brew versus another hundred doing chemo, this kind of study will not be done. Um, well, not only that, but um, oftentimes you the, you have different herbs that you take at yeah, different times and, of the day. Yeah, if and... you do it, yeah, if you do it properly, you're supposed to uh, personalize the herbal formula for the patient, and it should constantly change. Uh, it changes with the season, changes with the patient. I mean, we change the formulas because the person changes over right. time. Right. Right. Uh, you know, so it's constantly being manipulated and, and moved around to rhyme with the patient, okay? To, to rhyme with the condition of the patient. So it's a dynamic treatment, right? which you cannot do a clinical trial because then, uh, you know, they will argue that, well, it's not the same, you know, it's, it's day one, you're getting this, day seven, you're giving that, and you know. So it, it's, it's, it's quite impossible to do. So that's the problem. Again, the criticism is the lack of data lack of data is, is the problem. The yeah. problem is, is that the data is actually in the treatment. It's in the patients that have been successfully right. treated. Right, right, know? right. And that leads me to something that I find still very, very shocking about um, the Western medical system, which is how there is absolutely zero training on nutrition. Zero, yes. zero training Deplorable. and nutrition Deplorable. for cancer is extremely important. That is also true. Most patients who die from cancer actually die from malnutrition. Uh, that is not addressed, it's not well known. Uh, food is disparaged. Uh, partly, again, there's a commercial reason. There is no big company making special if there was one company specialized in only making foods for cancer patients, then there will be a lot of marketing, promotions, studies, trials, uh, and they would have reps going to doctor's offices telling the doctor, you should, oh, you should, the patient should tell the patient to eat this, eat that. Food is looked down upon. Uh, it's, it's, you know, a lot of, I hear lots of stories from patients said they went to their doctor at the cancer center and they asked the doctor what should i eat and the doctor simply says eat what you like to eat yes so, i've had that experience uh, <laughs> or they refer you okay then talk to the dietitian and the dietitian will give you a spiel about the, the uh, eat the five five servings of fruits and vegetables a day and that's it so it's it's what i call it it's, it's a mickey mouse level uh, and the, the, the doctor's uh, training, the medical school, usually has a two-week module on nutrition uh, as part of the first-year medical school or second-year medical school. And that's it. So, wow. yeah, there's very, there's very little, unless the doctor himself is interested, 
there's very little education uh, and awareness uh, on the usefulness and the impact of diets for cancer. And the other thing is, of course, if you think that a, a certain diet is useful, uh, ideally you organize a clinical trial. But again, it's, it's who's going to pay for it? There's no company making the special diet. <laughs> so that is, that is part of the problem. There is wow. Professor Longo out in California, <clears throat> uh, 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 Victor uh, Volta Longo, uh, he talks about fasting and a, a certain dietary approach, et cetera, for cancer. And one, one thing he would lament about is, but who is going to sponsor the study? Uh, nobody, because uh, who is to gain from the, 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 the dietary approach? There's nothing to gain, nothing to sell. Well, what, what, what are you going to sell? <laughs> the capital, capitalist system and structure is one of the bigger impediments to progress. Uh, although although it, it, it is helpful, it's an incentive for progress, but in only in a very certain direction is to make new, very expensive drugs yeah. uh, to create more profits. But it, it does not incentivize low cost uh, 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 and effective treatments that are not profitable because that's not how the system is geared. Which, so, is spelled, which is very sad for the third world because all these new cancer treatments are unaffordable uh, in, in only except modern uh, uh, first world countries. Uh, that, that is very, very unfortunate. Yeah. So you've been trying to shift this paradigm now for 20 years. Uh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, well, maybe more. Years, yeah. So has there been any progress is the needle moving at all well certainly there's much more awareness about repurposed drugs there are lots of articles lots and lots of articles um there are attempts to bring it up to a higher level to have like uh, meetings uh etc and and uh so there's a lot of research uh not at the clinical trial level but uh there's a lot of uh proposals to 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 that that at least to 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 share the insight that this is an issue uh so, so we're at that point but uh, i hope that there is more traction especially for the third in the third world in poorer countries these less expensive treatments uh at least when faced with a patient what what do you do when you are with a patient, and let's say if you are in in uh, uh, Zimbabwe, uh, practicing there, I mean you have all the knowledge of the latest drugs, but you have a patient with cancer who is poor, uh, and uh, and none of the drugs are available. Do you tell the patients I've got nothing, I can't treat you, go home, die? But well, they have. But you, there, there, there are things that they have available. Chloroquine is right there. For example, at least you can offer something uh, instead of saying, I got nothing. If you follow the US paradigm, if you train as an oncologist in a major US hospital, you go to the third world, uh, you, you're not gonna be able to practice because you got nothing to offer any of the patients because all the stuff that you were trained on that you that you are familiar with are also expensive uh, that are totally out of reach uh, to these patients to most of the patients in the world this has created a, an inequality which did not exist go yeah. back 150 years 100 years with the antibiotics i mean you have penicillin in america you got you, you got penicillin you in africa you got penicillin there is no great divide and there's no great you know it's it's like uh, the gap between the, the wealthy and the, and the, the the not so and the poor is not 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 so wide uh in the past but this this kind of a gap of treatment options is now also very very wide because of pharmaceuticals cost these issues and the prof for profit motive 
that most treatments are totally unaffordable. Now, well, penicillin was affordable to everybody when it came out. It wasn't like $10,000 a dose, um, et cetera. I mean, and it was not, you know, aspirin was not, I mean, but now look at the new prices for cancer drugs. The most expensive cancer treatment that is now out there is a million dollars per treatment cycle. What is that? It's an immunotherapy. You presented me when I went to see you the first time, you presented me with this wheel and you showed me several treatments and one of the, and the top two, one was 200,000 per, and it was using your own- Blood cells. Your own blood cells to create a vaccine tailor-made for you. Yeah, but yeah, that is not 200,000, it, it's, it's a few thousand per treatment cycle. Yeah, I couldn't but afford over that. Time, it, yeah, but over time, yeah, if you do it for a year or two years, it adds up. But this, the, the, the latest and newest treatment is a million dollars per treatment, not the duration of the you know, lifelong treatments. Okay, that, that will be multiple millions. Wow. Uh, et so, <laughs> but this is going to the stratosphere. Who's going to afford that? We've reached the end of our time, but I want to tell you how deeply grateful I personally am uh, to you for your work. Oh. But I, I feel that millions of people around the world, if they knew about you and your work, would also be equally grateful. So uh, keep it up and let's see if we can get Thank the word out. Those very kind words.